Blog Talk Radio. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the floor. Let the bodies hit the Tonight, uh, I want to, you know, I'm big on uh, talking about history uh, of our brothers and sisters who have fallen, and uh, want to talk about March 3rd and 4th 
uh, of 2002 real quick. Um, for those of you who don't know what uh, the significance of March 3rd and 4th, 2002 was, um, that's the Battle of Roberts Ridge or Takagar, uh, top of Takagar Mountain. Um, we lost several great Americans that day, and it was uh, really the first big battle uh, of the global war on terrorism. And I just wanted to take a second to uh, acknowledge the individuals who lost their life that day. Um, Petty Officer First Class Neil PTC Roberts, Dev Group, U.S. Air Force Combat Controller Tech Sergeant John A. Chapman, U.S. Air Force Pararescueman Sergeant Jason D. Cunningham, members of the 75th Ranger Regiment Corporal Matthew A. Cummings, Sergeant Bradley S. Kroos, Specialist Mark A. Anderson, and Knight Soccer Sergeant Philip Svitek. Uh, those gentlemen paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, in support of our freedom on March 3rd and 4th, 2002. And I just want to raise a glass to them and let them know and let everyone out there know that uh, they're not forgotten and we will always remember the sacrifices that they made. So with that, till Valhalla, brothers. Valhalla. All right. So now that I got that fine shot of Kentucky bourbon knocked out and out of the way. Um, let's talk about uh, our guest that we have tonight. Pretty excited about uh, the gentleman who's going to be on the show tonight. Anyone who knows uh, anything about the 75th Ranger Regiment um, knows our guest tonight. Um, before we get started, I want to say, hey, there is a big difference between ranger, being Ranger qualified and being a Ranger. Uh, you might have been to Ranger School and never served in a battalion. That means you're Ranger qualified. If you've actually been in a Ranger battalion, that means you're a Ranger. And the gentleman we have tonight is a Ranger icon. He's a Ranger legend. Uh, anyone who ha has ever served any time in the 75th Ranger Regiment um, knows about Carl Monger. So I uh, want to welcome Carl Monger to the show. Carl, how are you tonight, brother? Hey, I'm doing well, but, man, you way over blew that. No, come on now. No. I bet you'd go find a private in the Ranger Regiment right now. You have no idea who I am. Oh, I bet you they probably would, too, <laughs> um, especially if they're from 1st Battalion. No, I appreciate uh, appreciate all the kind words. I'm definitely not a legend. My, I, I was a solid Ranger officer. I was not a legend Ranger officer. I served with some of those guys, though. Well, I can tell you, um, anybody who's a Ranger who has spent any time in Ranger Regiment uh, in the last three decades um, knows exactly who Carl Monger is. Um, and I, I tell you, I definitely want to humble, say it, it's an honor to have you on the hot watch tonight. Well, it's an honor to be here. You know, it's funny, too, when you were talking your difference between uh, two types of Rangers. Um, when, when I was there, it may have changed now, but I suspect it hasn't. If you were uh, in the battalion and you had a Ranger tab, you told the rangers that didn't have ranger tabs yet they weren't rangers because they didn't have ranger tabs. So Absolutely. I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It all depends on your perspective. And I, I, I was have, tabbed uh, for seven years before I was scrolled, and uh, and in my opinion, uh, the type of person that goes after either a tab or a scroll is is kind of unique, and so that that forms the basis of a lot of what we do because we know we know we can connect those folks together. Well, I can tell you, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, it's it's not my mission. It's kind of a, a secondary mission for me. You know, first and foremost, I care about taking care of our, bro our veteran brothers and sisters. 
Um, but kind of secondary, something that's near and dear to my heart is uh, Stolen Bauer and guys who uh, are posers. So uh, kind of funny, uh, Ranger Chris Bemis was on my show or on the Hot Wash uh, a little over a year ago. Did he and, call uh, me a poser? No, he didn't. He did not. And, and that's, that's where we'll go to this. If he could walk, I'd kick his you know, ass. Actually, if he could walk, he'd kick my ass. <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I love Chris Bemis to death, and uh, Chris does a lot of great work uh, for our He's amazing guy. and sisters. Yeah. Um, Chris was on the show, and we had a guy call in. Um, he was trying to talk the talk, but he couldn't really walk the walk. And uh, me and Chris were, were messaging each other back and forth, talking, you know, saying, hey, I think this guy's a poser. I think he's full yeah. of it. And one of the first names that came up was, hey, let's call Carl Monger and find out if Carl knows about this guy. If Carl doesn't know him, then he's full mm-hmm. of shit. So uh, this guy was trying to say that uh, he was part of a historical uh, event that you were part of. Um, and, that's, hey, that's easy. We'll just call, call Carl Monger and find out if he knows him. If he doesn't, then he's full of shit. And, of course, it turned out to be the guy was full of shit. But uh, that's the kind of weight that you carry, Carl, Um the well, there's this handy little thing I keep that's called a roster. So you know, I, I try to keep rosters of the significant events that Rangers have participated in. So sometimes it's easy to look a name up. I don't have all the new ones, though. Uh, they're, they're a little too secretive. They won't give me those lists. But when I was in, I know, there. right? I don't know what's up with that. So definitely, uh, you know, Carl, I've had a lot of guys uh, on the show that uh, that I personally know, and most of the guys that I have on the show I either personally know or uh, one of my good friends personally knows. Uh, that's one of the things that's, that's huge to me is is not allowing any uh, posers on the show and making sure that everybody that comes on the hot wash is personally vetted. Um, obviously, I didn't have to vet you at all because your, your reputation precedes you. Um, well, I'm no secret so, on the internet, unfortunately. <laughs> we do have a, a good friend uh, in common, and that's uh, Greg Coker. Um, I believe. Uh, I would never acknowledge a person that I know that guy. Uh, sometimes, you know, Greg. At least, Greg, at Greg least not in public. Sometimes. You know, he has picture. He has, next to the desk in his house, he has fragments of the helicopter that he was shot down in. Mm. He, he has, does. He has a, uh, a sat phone that's all melted. It looks like kind of like a kid's toy now because it's all melted into like one globby thing. But uh, he was showing that off the last time I was at his house. So I I actually uh, – I was out of town at, a, at an event, and uh, my wife was down at, at uh, Gravy's Ranch, and you were there. And she's like, hey, I met this, this really nice guy at, at Greg's tonight. His name's Carl Monger, and I'm like, wow, really? You met Carl Monger? She's like, yeah, I got his card right here. You know, I talked to him. He's a really nice guy. So Brandy actually got a chance to meet you and hang out with you and uh, shoot some guns with you. Uh, that was a good night. evening. So I yeah, that was one of those know, super uh, hot Texas days. We were out busting some caps, and, uh, and then I think uh, we ate some barbecue and drank some beer. It was a good day. So, Carl, one of the things that uh, we do on the Hot Wash uh, definitely is kind of ask the question of who is Carl Monger? You know, who who are you? Where did you come from? What led you to become uh, an officer in the United States Army and, and join the, the 75th Rangers? And it kind of talks through your history and tells a little bit about you, and uh, we'll go from there. How long does the show last? 
<laughs> oh, we got plenty of time. As long as we need to. As long as we need to, brother. No, I, I have this. Uh, <clears throat> one of my faults is when I start talking. Sometimes it's hard to shut me up. So you have to you have to make sure and call time if you need to. But uh, I I have uh, my personal story goes directly into what I do today. So I kind of want to share details about it because it's important. You know, it's something that it's it's extremely personal, but. Uh, over the last couple of years, I have realized that it's important for me to tell the story because uh, it, while I thought at certain points in my life I had control over the things that I chose to do, as I look back over it now, it seems like there was an unseen hand that kind of guided the whole thing. And when I was a kid, my father was active duty Army, and uh, I was born in Germany. And when I was four, we were, he was stationed at Fort Riley, and he left. He walked out of my family. I was four years old, two-year-old uh, sister. My mom was pregnant. And, uh, and he just he left. I never saw him again until I was an ROTC cadet, I don't know, 18, 19 years old at Fort Riley going through the, the ROTC advance camp. And, uh, and so I went that – I grew up through my formative years without my dad, but there was an organization that stepped in that really – made a difference in my life, and that was Big Brothers. At that time, it was only Big Brothers. It wasn't Big Brothers, Big Sisters. But mm-hmm. I got the benefit from having a mentor at a very important time in my life. And I was actually one of the first nine kids when the organization started up in Kansas where I lived. And uh, and later on, when I was in college, I became a Big Brother for a single-parent kid that needed some help. And uh, I had no intention of going in the Army, I was chasing girls and drinking beer and uh, didn't do very well in one of my engineering classes. And then I saw this sign on the wall that said marksmanship class. And I thought, uh, that's what I need is an easy A. So I'm going to take marksmanship class. Well, it turned out it was an ROTC class. They just disguised it and didn't admit it. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> there's a crusty old sergeant major there that was a Korean Vietnam veteran. And, uh, and so he was teaching us about marksmanship, which I kind of liked. And the ROTC professor of military science was a lieutenant colonel, special forces, Vietnam veteran, Ranger Tab, uh, 82nd Combat Patch, and and he was just he looked like John Wayne. He was freaking amazing, and he formed a little club called the Wichita Rangers. And so he had these college kids that he taught patrolling to and ambush techniques. And you know today we'd probably all be in jail for what we did back then, but. We actually ran little patrols in some of the uh, seedier areas of Wichita where we probably would be shot today, but uh, but we'd go up on, you know, do a recon on somebody that was doing drugs in their car. And uh, and I liked all that stuff. And uh, and so he pulled me into his office after a couple of months and said, you should apply for an ROTC scholarship. So being very flattered at the whole idea of having the government pay for my school, I applied and I won the scholarship, so the Army paid for the last three years of my college. And uh, and because of that, that summer, this was 1981, they came to me at the end of the school year, which would have been, what, May, and they said, hey, guess what? We have an airborne school slot for the end of July. Would you like it? And well, I'm a college kid. I got hair down over my ears. I'm not in super good physical condition at that point because, like I said, I was drinking beer and chasing girls. And uh, I'd never been to basic training. I'd never been to ROTC advanced camp. And I said yes. And airborne school was the very first 
military experience that I had for real. And uh, and I showed up there with hair over my ears, touching my collar and my pickle suit because we were still wearing the old green pickle suit then. And uh, and I had there was a captain that his shoulders were I think he could brush both sides of a door when he walked through. And he looked at me and said a couple of four letter words and and told me to go get a haircut. And uh, so after that, getting my head shaved and uh, I walk up to the room where. I was assigned, uh, it was the, the summer class, so there were lots of ROTC cadets and military academy cadets, and there was an Annapolis cadet that was my roommate. But they'd all been through their basic training and stuff before, so I was a year before all of those guys. And uh, so I get in there, and I throw all my gear into the locker, and I looked at him, and I said, hey, let's go get something to eat. And he looked at me absolutely horrified, and he said, "How? what are you doing? And I said, well, let's go get something to eat. And he said, you got to hang your stuff up. <laughs> and I'm saying, what do you mean to hang my stuff up? Well, it's okay. It's in there. And he's like, no, no, you got to hang your stuff up. So he's doing the forehead plant the whole time because, you know, I'm sitting on the bunk. I'm like, don't sit on the bunk. What are you doing? And uh, so, so I get an education from a guy that wasn't very happy to have a college student in his, uh, you know, sharing his room in the airborne barracks. But the first morning airborne school, they, uh, we all get information. Of course, they drop us for push-ups half a dozen times before anything starts. And then they say, who wants to go on sick call? And there's like 50 guys that leave formation and go on sick call. There's, I don't know, 300 soldiers in the class. One of the first classes that had women. We had a platoon full of women in the class, too. None of the women that I saw dropped out one on sick call. But all these guys dropped out and go on sick call. And I'm thinking, are you freaking kidding me? You have an opportunity for the Army to teach you how to jump out of a plane, and you're going on sick call. So it, it was an interesting introduction to the Army, and I found out three weeks later when I got my wingspin on my chest, I absolutely loved it. And uh, But the following year, I tried to get them to send me to Ranger School instead of Advance Camp, but they wouldn't let me, so I had to go to Fort Raleigh to Advance Camp, where I met my biological father for the first time since I was four. And uh, somebody comes up to the and they said, hey, cadet, come here. There's a sergeant major behind the bleachers who wants to talk to you. And uh, and I walked around the bleachers, and the, and we're both wearing BDUs now. And and there's this this guy that looks exactly it's like the Back to the Future movie where Marty McFly meets his grandfather in the 1800s. Uh, it, it was it was bizarre because I'd never been around him. Uh, looked exactly like me, but with gray hair, a little heavier, and uh, of course wearing Sergeant Major rank. But uh, we got a chance to talk a little bit and and started to develop a relationship from there. But uh, one of the things that, as I went into the Army, I, I, never, I never thought that I was, as I went into the Army, I never thought I was good enough to apply for service in the Ranger Regiment. I was in Ranger School during Grenada. I really didn't understand what a Ranger Battalion was. I mean, I knew legendary-wise, but I hadn't been around any soldiers that served in the, at that time, just Ranger Battalion because the regiment hadn't come on board yet. And, uh, and I'm at ranger school, and I'm starting to get to know some of these guys, and I'm thinking, man, these, these are amazing soldiers. And, of course, they were all enlisted because any officer that's in the regiment's already got his tab. But as I'm, as I'm learning and, and getting exposed to these guys, uh, it, it never at that point crossed my mind, I need to go be part of that group. Uh, I, I guess I'd psyched myself out or something. So then I, I go to Fort Lewis, and I, I do my thing as a platoon leader at Company XO, and then I go – to Hawaii where I command a company in the late 80s 
matter of fact, today is my daughter's 29th birthday. She was born uh, about three weeks after I took command of that company 29 years ago. And uh, as uh, as I go into company command, one of the uh, battalion commanders, my second battalion commander that came in was a guy named Jim Dubik. And uh, Dubik had served half or more of his professional career in the in a Ranger battalion. He'd been a, one of the initial founding platoon leaders in the 2nd Ranger Battalion. He'd been a company commander there. He'd been the EXO of the 1st Ranger Battalion. And after a few months of being my boss, he called me in his office and he said, if you want, you should put in a packet for regiment because I'd support it. And, uh, and at that time, that was the highest compliment I think anybody had ever paid to me in the military. So I put a packet in. This, this is kind of funny because he says, here's what you do. you got to go get a hold of all your old battalion commanders, have them write letters of recommendation. The better all say they recommend you. Get all your OERs, all your awards, you know, anything anybody's ever said nice about you. Put it all into a packet and then send it to regiment with a 4187 on top of it. So I get them all together, and I go in and I, I, I say, hey, sir, my packet's all done. I just need a letter from you. And he opens up his desk. He pulls out the his Golden Dragon personal stationery, and he writes, Buck, hire this guy, Jim. He rips it off and hands it to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, sir, that's because that's awesome. all the other ones were on official letterhead, you know, and uh, fancy and all that stuff. And I said, that's my letter recommendation. He said, it's better than any other one you have in that packet. And, uh, <laughs> and he was talking about Buck Kernan, who at that time was the Ranger Regimental Commander. And, uh, <laughs> Buck Kernan, that, that's an icon that's awesome. right there. Yeah, Buck yeah, retired really. as a four-star. He's an advisor for what we do right now. Uh, actually, I've been trading messages with him this last week, and uh, Dubik retired as a three-star. He was the Minsticky commander in Iraq during the surge time frame, so he was in charge of training all the Iraqi police forces up as a three-star. Um, but uh, I think I mentioned before, I was in Ranger School during Grenada. Well, I got orders assigning me to the Ranger Regiment now, and uh, two days later, they jumped into Panama, and I'm sitting in Hawaii watching CNN while the Rangers are jumping into Panama, knowing that within about six months, I'm going to be reporting into the Ranger Regiment with no CIB, no combat patch, and probably going to be odd man out. I knew I could see it coming, and, uh, and, and that's kind of what it was. It took me a while. Once I got there, it took me a while to earn my way in because it's, it's not a place where <clears throat> you come in based on what's on your uniform and get accepted. You have to earn your way. Every day that you're there, you have to earn your way. And uh, mm-hmm. and I was very blessed to serve there for three years. And I had uh, a, an experience that changed my life was in October of 1992. We had a helicopter crash that went into the Great Salt Lake, and it killed 12 out of 13 on board. The, the Air Force Special Operations pilot's the only one that survived and because he was thrown clear of the wreckage when it hit. But it killed two Ranger Battalion commanders, an Air Force Special Operations Tactics Squadron commander, uh, a Ranger First Sergeant, two Ranger RTOs, and and five other Air Force Special Operators. And the uh, battalion commander that was killed is Ken Staus, who was I'd been as S1 for a year, and then I transitioned over to be the assistant S3 for Joe Votel, and uh, and that was that was one of those events that kind of changes what's going to happen in the rest of your life. It made me examine where my priorities were. Um, new battalion commander, the permanent guy that came in, uh, I wasn't on his favorite list. He'd been there when I first came in, and, and he had, you know, when you're a ranger battalion commander, you can do whatever you want. 
and he wanted another guy to take the ranger company that I had been promised. So he gave that to the other guy, and, and uh, I had one of those FTA moments. And uh, I, I went home and, and talked to my wife about what what we should do next, and I'm thinking, you know, the Army uh, usually goes to war once every 20 years. Desert Storm just ended. We got a little piece of it, but not much. And uh, and now I may be screwed out of command in a battalion because I had two OERs that said I was going to command a ranger company, and then I don't. There, that's that's a black mark mm-hmm. in the file. So I come back in the next morning, and I open up the message book, and I see a Department of the Army announcement that says that because not enough captains in year group 83 had taken the voluntary separation incentive, they were looking for guys that wanted to get out and get paid a, a healthy bonus to do so. So it was like, Signed from God. Okay. Well, thanks. You know, I, I guess this is uh, confirmation that maybe I need to leave. So, I took uh, I took the opportunity for the early separation, and uh, and at this time now, Dave Grange was the regimental commander. So, I wrote a note to him that sir, don't even, don't even ask. I'm done. I'm getting out. Um, I'm not reeking. And uh, and within two weeks, I'm back in Wichita, Kansas, with a high and tight haircut, trying to figure out what my life is going to be. And uh, no income except for the separation payment that wasn't going to – an annual payout over a 20-year time period. It wasn't going to come for several months, the first iteration. And uh, so I'm scrambling. I've got to get a job. got to got to find a place for my family to stay. And one of the first uh, big interviews that I had was a huge oil and gas company privately held that's headquartered in Wichita, Kansas. And their human resource manager looks at me and looks at my resume, and she says, ooh, Army officer. And I'm thinking, hey, this is going to turn out well. And she said, you know, uh, you guys are real good at following orders and doing what you're told, but here at this company, we need people that have initiative, think outside the box, and don't need constant supervision. So it was wow. it was such an insulting thing that she said to me that I just I packed up my stuff and left. I mean, what, what else am I going to do? And uh, and so then I, I went into scramble mode trying to figure out what was I going to do to make a living. And and as I went through all of this process, I was very, very fortunate in that a buddy of mine who I had served with, actually had known before we went in the military, he had a transition plan. He got out knew what he was going to do. He'd worked his plan. He was now moving into a management role at a branch um, of a construction equipment dealership. And he wanted me to come work for him. And and I pushed back. I said, no, I don't know anything about construction equipment. I don't know anything about sales. Matter of fact, I don't have a great impression of most salespeople. So I, I think I'll pass. And he said, well, I can teach the iron and I can teach the sales. What I can't teach is dedication, the ability to learn, and, uh, and honesty and integrity. And he said, you've demonstrated all that stuff. So if you decide you want to do this, I'll make sure you're successful. So I went, and, and over the next about 15 years, I did. I worked for a couple of different firms doing construction equipment management and sales, and, and absolutely loved it. It's a great industry. And uh, during this process, I had two interactions with veterans that are very important to kind of where I am now with what I do with Gallant Few. But first, I'm going to stop talking for a minute and see. I'm going to take a breath and see if you have any remarks or questions. Actually, um, I'd like to interject uh, really quickly. Uh, the lady who said that, you know, she can't hire soldiers because, you know, all they do is they don't think outside of the box. 
all of the Fortune 500 companies are all run by form are are all veterans. So it teaches you management skills. It teaches you everything the civilian world uh, doesn't have any efficiency to do. So well, you know, when I first got to Hawaii before I commanded a company in the 25th, they made me the brigade assistant S3 for the uh, first brigade, 25th Infantry Division. And uh, and as I walked in, the S3 said, hey, Captain, come here. We have, in eight months, we're going to do uh, a battalion external evaluation. And we're going to send elements of that battalion to the big island. We're going to send elements of it to uh, Molokai, which is another island in the island chains. And uh, and we're going we're gonna to need Navy ships. We're going to need some prop aircraft from the, uh, from the Air Force. We're going to need some helicopters. And, oh, by the way, we're going to do some live fires, and so go. And he didn't say how to do it. He said, this is where we want to be, and it better be a damn good exercise. And it was up to me to figure out how to make that happen. And, uh, you know, that's if you, if you want to take initiative in thinking outside the box, that is the definition of that. And that operation mm-hmm. went off, uh, I, I think it went off really, really well. And uh, mm-hmm. I learned an incredible amount through that process that certainly demonstrated to me that it's not you're not a robot when you're in a leadership position in the military because you're expected to perform and, and provide results. And the higher you go in the military, the greater those results are that you're expected to, to bring in. And, uh, and nobody wants you to say, uh, okay, sir, that sounds awesome. What, what do I do first? That didn't happen mm-hmm. because you got thrown out of the office. So, yeah, what she said was was completely false. But, again, this was 1993, so mm-hmm. military transition wasn't a thing at that point, and we weren't at war. You know, coming out of Desert Storm, that, that, uh, that was not anything on the scale of what we've been going through for the last 15 years. And, uh, and yeah. I think that it was just an entirely different environment. But at the same time, I mean, she's talking about, you know, uh, finances. You know, they are really known to sweep everything under the carpet if they screw up. When you guys screw up, you're talking about multi-million dollar aircraft. You're talking about personnel. I mean, you're talking on a massive scale, including death. You know, you're accountable for everything. I mean, they're, even their justice system, you're accountable for everything. So for a civilian to say that is, is kind of crazy. But um, Who's ignorant? Yeah, it was ignorant. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, but do you think? And I would like to think that they sense? they crashed and burned and went out of business because they didn't hire me. That wasn't <laughs> the case. They're they're still doing okay. But uh, well, but, but I think that I just want to point out. What's that? Something I want to point out, Carl. Uh, you know, you talked about. Oh, I'm just. Uh, I'm a nobody. I'm humble. It, it, a couple of people you've mentioned uh, during your your uh, storytelling. Um, Buck Kernan. Buck Kernan is absolutely a Ranger icon. Um, I had the the honor and the privilege of serving under Buck Kernan when he was the commanding general of the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, then when he was the 18th Airborne Corps commander. Um, and I ran into Buck two uh, years later when I was actually in the 160th. Um, he was down in Savannah, Georgia, uh, with first to the 75th, doing an OPD, and it just so happened. Um, I, I don't know how it happened, but, you know, it was St. Patrick's Day weekend. Um, St. Patrick's Good Day is like – Exactly. You know, 
Savannah is like the second St. Patrick's Day celebration in the, in the United States of America. Um, me and one of my old buddies uh, were running around in downtown Savannah, and we ran into Buck. And, uh, you know, I was in the 160th, so I obviously I kind of had the, the know on what was going on. We showed up at this uh, apartment or this flat where they were having kind of this private party for, for you know, 1st Battalion, 75th Range Regiment. And we walk up the stairs, and Buck Kernan is standing there talking to the battalion commander for for 1st Battalion. And uh, Buck sees, him, sees me and Paul, and he's like, holy shit, what are you two old fuckers doing here? You know, he gives us a hug, and they're like, what the fuck is going on? Um, you know, Buck Kernan is a stand-up guy. That man, I would follow him to the gates of hell and back. Um, Buck Kernan is definitely a ranger icon, and you're sitting here talking about him. Say, oh, you know, I'm I'm a nobody. And you talk about uh, Votel. I've known Votel uh, for years and years. Uh, knew him when he was a battalion commander. Knew him when he was uh, as he made his rise as an 06, and then on up through, uh, you know, the commanding general of uh, JSOC and uh, I believe uh, U.S. SOCOM, correct? Also yeah, Captain Monger, uh, the absolutely. 175S1 in process, Captain Promotable Joe Votel. When he yeah. got there, so I, and and then I ended up working but, for him when he was the S3, and I quit on him. So you, I walked into his office and said, "Hey, sir, I'm done." And, you've uh, worked with absolutely some of the most instrumental guys in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Uh, so for you to, in the and Army. I, like I said, absolutely in the Army. You know, Carl Monger is a very humble individual, but you know, Carl, you are a Ranger icon. Um, you grew up with. Uh, the who's who of rangers and ranger regiment so yeah well somebody's um, got to be there so they can be the who's who you know <laughs> but, but i but i understand where carl's coming from he's not resting his laurels on past victories or defeats he's still on a mission so when he's got on that mission mindset you know he's he's not you know plotting anything he's just trying to continue all the good that he's doing for his community hey if i if i hadn't had that experience if I hadn't, mm-hmm. if my dad hadn't left me when I was young, if I hadn't been involved mm-hmm. in Big Brothers Big Sisters, if I didn't have the experience that froze me mentally as a captain, um, and and not far from being a company commander, I would not be able to do the things that I do now and have the conversations that I have now. I I can, I can, I can pick up the phone and I can call Buck Kernan and I can ask him for advice. I can send Joe Votel a message and I can say, Joe, I'm, I'm, can you help me? You know, what do you think about this? And and I'll get responses mm-hmm. back from them. Um, and I can talk to an E3 that had a horrible experience in the military, maybe a DUI, and, and got released from a special operations unit, and they're hating life, but they'll talk to me because I'm I'm a captain, right? Even though I, I, I have a retired rank of major, but I did that in the reserves. But active duty-wise, mm-hmm. mentally, I'm always going to be in the company commander mode. So I can have the conversation to a rank down, I can have the conversation to a rank up. I can bridge the gap between the two, and I think that makes me more accessible and able to have Absolutely. those kind of conversations. And uh, Absolutely. And it doesn't help to have to have friends that you know. Want, <laughs> let's drop some more names, shall we? One of my very good friends is the new director of the CIA, and uh, mm-hmm. he and I served on the same board of deacons in my church, and we used to go. Mike Pompeo and I went to. Breakfast about twice a month. We'd we'd meet at a little greasy spoon in Wichita, Kansas. And one morning he said, "Hey, I I think uh, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring for this open 
seat for Congress. And uh, and I looked at him and I said, dude, if you want to be a congressman, you should automatically be disqualified from running. And uh, and so we laughed about that. And then I said, but but if you decide that's what you want to do, you tell me what I can do to help. And so I co-chaired his veterans committee and I, I went around and talked to a bunch of you know, American Legion, VFW posts and other groups about him when he couldn't be there. And uh, and he did what three I think three terms as maybe he was four terms as congressman and now he's the director of the CIA. So uh, it's pretty funny because the day that he got confirmed, I sent him a text message and just hey hey Mike, congratulations man that that's amazing, you know good luck with what you do. And the next morning he texted me back. He's like thanks. And now I'm thinking what the hell is the director of the CIA doing texting me back? <laughs> You gotta have more important things to do. Get busy. You know, it, it, and I think that's awesome. And Alex, Alex brought up a very good point. Um, there are too many individuals in the military um, try to rest they do after the military on um, what they did when they were in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, trying that's to use the biggest, their. That, that's the biggest anchor. That's the biggest cause. Of uh, a veteran going downhill to destruction is mm. everything that was was good in their life, the best accomplishment, the most important thing they were ever a part of is now behind them, and they don't have anything to look forward to. And that's absolutely false. But there are I, I work with veterans all the time that have that kind of attitude. Uh, t- last night yeah, I had a conversation with a guy at 11 o'clock at night that called me that that is going through that same kind of thing. And, and I think that's, that's, that's absolutely why it's so important that. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I was going to say that's why it's, it's so important that there are people like you, Carl, that that have you know been there and and understand this because they they are still looking for guidance. They are still looking for somebody that that you know understands the trials and tribulations and and is willing to to step forward and 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 put something put part of themselves out there you know, for, for, uh, exposing themselves and their vulnerability to say, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm here with you. We're going to, we're going to get through this. And, you know, what you're doing is fantastic, brother. I'm so very proud of you. You know, the, what is common among soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines too, but because most of the people I deal with are soldiers, I'll focus on that. But they, uh, they don't admit weakness and they don't talk about their failures and when they – I had a guy – gosh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote last night. I wrote it down in my notebook, but I don't have that handy to me. But he basically said, you know, I was somebody. I could make things happen, and now everything I touch is screwed up. And I said, so when you were making things happen, did you do it all by yourself? And he said, no, I had a, I had a crew of badass mofos that were at my side. And I said, then why aren't you calling them now? And he and he stopped and he went, oh, you're right. It, it, just, it hit him like a ton of bricks. He's like, yeah, you're right. I'm trying to do this by myself and I'm not asking for help. And uh, I mean, that's the whole, when somebody has that regret, they're never going to be what they were before. And they don't get a job. The VA jacks them around. They have to drink to go to sleep. All of these things they don't want to reach out and say, you know, who, who's going to call up their ranger buddy and say, 
Hey, I uh, I'm, I'm I think I might be drinking a little too much. Uh, you want to talk about that? I need help. Yeah. Yeah. Re- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's, they just what? don't do it. It doesn't happen. No, they're not going to do that. But if yeah. one of their ranger buddies called them up and said, I think I might, I, I need a little bit of help with my drinking, they would stop what they're doing and they would do everything they could to help that person out. The other guy would do the same for them, but they won't do it. So you've got all these guys out there and women that won't reach out for help because they're afraid of admitting weakness and showing that they've got some vulnerability, and it leads them down a path to destruction. And it's not every veteran that's out there because, you know, most veterans that are out there do okay, and some of them do really, really, really well. But there are a lot of veterans, even some that look like they're doing okay, that could be doing better if they were able to break through that mentality that they have that they're never going to be as good as they used to be and they can't admit weakness and ask for help in the areas that they need help in. And then down the road, they end up alcoholics or they end up going through divorce or they end up you know, having whatever, mm-hmm. whatever happens to them. And uh, I, there's, one, there's a, an absolute heartbreaking story that I'll share with you. I'm not going to use the guy's real name. Um, let's, 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 say, let's call him Jack. So Jack was with a Ranger Battalion, jumped into Panama uh, while I was watching it on CNN. And, uh, on, and on his way down, he had tracer rounds coming up through his canopy, jumped at 500 foot at night into a combat zone. And he hits the ground with enough force that he breaks his leg, screws up his hip, his back, his shoulder. And uh, in his words, I left a divot in the ground. Well, you don't call time out and go on sick call at that point you got to go fight. So he linked up with a ranger buddy and did his thing. And the next day saw a ranger medic and said, hey, doc, I think I broke my leg on the jump. And the doc said in typical ranger fashion, well, if you think you broke your leg, you're fine, so move out. And, uh, <clears throat> and another day goes by, and, and his leg's clearly broken, so he gets evacuated out. And while he's being evacuated out, uh, a ranger come, is brought into – <clears throat> excuse me, the aid station where he's waiting to be evacuated, and this guy dies. And he's there present with yeah. him while the guy passes away. And, uh, and and he died from fragmentary wounds. So what do you think is running through Jack's mind at this point? Hey, I mean, if, yeah. I'm not worthy to be here. I've got a broken leg. leg. I'm, I'm a exactly. screw-up. Exactly. And uh, here's a hero... I need to go back and fight, but I can't. I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not a ranger. And uh, and he comes. He gets evacuated out. He's in Walter Reed, and uh, he gets stuck on the same ward where the Navy SEALs are that went to try to get Noriega's hangar. You know, they lost some guys. They got pretty shot up. And uh, what do you have when Navy SEAL? Oh wait, Navy SEAL joke. How do you stop a Navy <laughs> SEAL kicking in your front door? So a mirror. Put a mirror on it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, so anyway, there's there's a bunch of Navy SEALs there, and, and what happens? The VIPs in the D.C. area, they want to come get a piece of a Navy SEAL. So while they're there, they find out, oh, there's a Ranger. So they go over, and they, they want to see the Ranger who has a broken leg who doesn't want anything to do with them because he's not worthy to even be in the presence of these heroes that got shot up. Mm-hmm. And uh, And that attitude poisons when he gets back. He's the first guy back. The rest of the battalion is still deployed, and he's there with a cast on his leg, and everybody wants to make a big deal out of him, and he don't want anything to do with it. And that attitude ends up getting him released from the battalion within six months. 
and he carries with him over the next 20, 25 years the sense of not being good enough, not being a real ranger. He never asked the VA to compensate him for his injuries that were incurred on that combat jump. And, uh, and because of those injuries, he was limited in the things that he could do to make a living. Didn't have a college degree, never asked for any educational benefits, just he lived a shadow of what his life should have been, and he never reached out to anybody to talk about it because he didn't feel like he was worthy. And, uh, and I got introduced to him when he had a health episode, and a buddy was concerned that he might hurt himself, so he, a buddy reached out to me and said, I'm concerned about Jack. So I get on the phone with Jack, and Jack is telling me this whole story. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, my God, why did nobody ever sit down with you and say you are a ranger? You jumped into Panama 500 foot. I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah. You're a part of history. Uh, you need to get over yourself and, and accept the fact that you are part of something important. And shit happens when you're in combat. And, uh, mm. and so we, we, were, we have been able to you – know, I practically had to drag him by the nose – to get him to put in a packet to the VA. And, uh, and this, all this conversation happened about a year ago. And, uh, and, and I even, when I found out that he, he had no money, he, he didn't have any resources, he was, he was truly at the very end of his rope. And, uh, and, and Gallif, you gave him a cash grant. I sent him a check and I said, I don't care what you do with it. Take your wife to dinner. You know, go, go whatever you need to do, make a house payment, but you you do something to just relieve the stress from you for a little while. And and as I'm talking to him on the phone, he, he calls me when he gets the check. And you you have a ranger that is in tears on the phone because nobody has ever cared enough to walk him through his experience and help him get past what he thinks is the greatest failure of his life that has ruined the last 25 years and uh and he he called me up here a couple of weeks ago and he said uh i want you to know that the i just got a call from the va they have approved 100 percent disability for me and never mm-hmm. going to have money again the rest of his life and he said That's when good. i get my back pay i'm sending i'm paying you back what you gave me double because i want you to use the extra money to help somebody else and uh you know that—that's what it's all about. And mm-hmm. you, you have there are men and women out there that are in a community. There, this guy. There was a ranger breakfast within two miles of his house two weeks mm-hmm. before he and I talked the first time on the phone. And I said, "Dude, there was a ranger breakfast two miles from your house. Why didn't you go?" And he said, "I didn't think I'd be welcome." And and that almost chokes me up just saying it. Are you kidding? Why? And he said, well, there's going to be rangers there that have been to Afghanistan, you know, three or four times, Iraq. They've been in the shit. And uh, and I said, and they're going to look at you like you look at a ranger that climbed Point Dock because you jumped out over Panama at 500 foot with no reserve into a hot drop zone. Hello? <laughs> Are you getting yeah. me here? You need to be part of this community because you're going to be respected for for who you are. But that's a... We were talking about earlier what Alex said. He, he, he never thought he would be as good as what he thought he once was. And all of that is untrue because all the characteristics that make somebody a ranger or an infantryman, a squad leader, a, a tank commander, all of those things translate into success in the civilian world 
You just need coaching on how to get there. And that's <clears throat> Big Brothers Big Sisters has been such an important part of my life. I diverted from construction equipment for a couple of years, and I, I got the opportunity to run the agency that I had been a kid in a long time before. And uh, for two years, mm-hmm. I ran that agency, and it, had, <clears throat> it was a wonderful experience. And then I went back into the construction world. And uh, during that time that I was there, I learned an incredible amount uh, of how a nonprofit works on the inside. And mm-hmm. as I went back into the construction world, there, there's two other things I got to tell you real quick, because I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. two experiences uh, with veterans were very important in the development of what we do with Gallant Few now. The first one was uh, my great uncle, Roy Jones. And Roy was a squad leader in the 89th Division in World War One, And he fought in some of the deadliest campaigns of World War One, and never told any of his family about anything that he had been through. And when I came back one time on leave from the Army, it was uh, some holiday deal, and all the family was together, and he's at my grandmother's house, and we were doing barbecue or something. And we find ourselves, just he and I, are sitting by ourselves out on a porch. And he starts opening up and telling me stories about being in France in World War I. And, uh, and, and it was amazing to hear him talk about being a squad leader. And, and one of the kind of funny stories that he told, it was tragic, but, but he, he told me about uh, he sent a patrol out, and he gave the guy that was in charge of the patrol his 45, and the guy ended up getting killed and didn't come back, and he lost his 45. And, he, and he's telling the story like the biggest regret was he didn't get his 45 back because the guy was hurt. Right. But, uh, but he also told me about uh, being under fire and being, being in a shell hole and hearing one of his buddies get hit. And he scrambled out after the rounds came in. He scrambled out, grabbed the guy, and dragged him back into his hole before the next rounds came in. And uh, and I said, God, Uncle Roy, that's amazing. Did were you decorated for bravery? And and he recoiled like I'd slapped him in the face. And he said, I didn't do anything brave. No, 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 no. And uh, it was the next day. I think everybody left. I was back over my grandmother's house, and I said, Wow, Uncle Roy told me that story about him dragging that guy into the shell hole. That what do you, you know? What do you think about that? And she about dropped the plate she had in her hand because he had never told anybody else in the family any of the experiences. But now I'm a veteran. I'm an infantryman. He, even though multi-generations and multi-conflicts separate us, he felt a, a bond with me that he didn't have with anybody else. And so he opened up and he wanted to talk about these things. And, and that veteran to veteran, I mean, when, when I was his great nephew and I wasn't a veteran, he didn't tell me any stories. But now I'm a veteran, he did. There was a difference there. There was something mm-hmm. that changed. And when we get veterans that are generation, transitional generations ahead, it's a big term for meaning somebody that left active duty a while ago, been through school, got a job, and now they're established in the community. They want to connect with veterans that are walking down that same path. They want to share their stories. They Like, this is the hot wash. I love the name of that because what is missing in the transition training that's out there right now? A hot wash. Right. Absolutely, and I, who, you know, who I does the transition you, Carl, AAR? This uh, the name of this show 
uh, I came up with the name for this show. Um, one of my great friends, Jack Stottlemyre, who's a uh, retired yeah, Jack. Uh, yeah, Jack's a bad motherfucker. You know, so for yeah, for any of you guys awesome. who don't know, this is a uh, uncensored show. It's unadulterated, 100% the truth. I speak my mind. If you don't like it, oh well, don't listen to it. Um, but you know, this show is is wide open. Um, I got the name of this this podcast um, from a good friend of mine named Jack Sotomayor, who's a former um, member of uh, Delta. He's a retired SAR major. Um, Jack's a very good friend of mine who makes knives, uh, rustic knives. Um, me and Jack talk all the time. Uh, and you know, I was talking to Jack when I was thinking about starting uh, my own, my own podcast and I said, Hey Jack, what do you think be a good, uh, name for the show? We kicked around a couple of ideas and he said, Hey man, the hot wash sounds like a great name. And I was like, oh, shit, that's it. The hot wash. Because uh, mm-hmm. you know what? We'll come on. We'll talk about, um, veterans issues, veteran suicide, um, and we'll promote um, organizations who show veterans that just because they're out of the Army now doesn't mean that they are worthless, doesn't mean that they're damaged goods. It means that um, they can still be full, productive members of society. <clears throat> and that's what the hot wash is all about. And I think it even goes so, beyond just being full, productive members of society, which is great. Everybody's earned the right to do whatever they want post-military, but, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, when I, when I say soldiers, I mean all, they have been given a gift. And Ken Staus, who was killed so many years ago, he used to say, to whom much is given, much is required. Almost every day he would say that to me. And, and mm-hmm. that meaning we've been given leadership training, we've been given resources, we've been given all these experiences to make a difference. And, and that means we have to be better than average. We have to go above and beyond. And when we come back to a civilian community, we need to be city council members. We need to be in positions of influence in the communities that help the communities become better places. Because, quite frankly, most of the civilian leadership that's out there sucks. And they've mm-hmm. never had to sacrifice. They don't understand how to put something else above them. I mean, that, that is one of my favorite books is Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. And the movie absolutely sucks. Never see the movie. If you see that movie somewhere, burn it. <laughs> but get the book, read the book, because the book talks about a society that recognizes that, that actually fell apart. We may be going that direction. Fell, degenerated into chaos. And the people that stepped up in the communities worldwide, globally, that took leadership positions and put order back into chaos were military veterans. And they put a system in place that said that if you want to be a citizen, meaning you have the right to vote, you have the right to hold office, you have to prove that you are willing to put something above yourself, meaning go serve. And that is, you know, getting a little bit off on a tangent here, but one of the greatest failings of our society right now, it's a free society, people can do whatever they want, but when you have not demonstrated or you have not learned that you are not the most important thing in the universe, that there are other things that our free society is more important than you, 
and your individual liberties, then, I mean, we're, we're a little bit in trouble because of that. But veterans can step up. They can take a leadership role, and they can do things that will guide communities to be better communities because they're not in it for themselves. They're in it for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely important. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, go ahead, Alex, please, please. I was going to say, just to kind of regress a little bit, um, and this will lead up to this, but um, when you were telling me about the story, um, it reminds me of survivor's guilt uh, when they go through battle and a lot of their, uh, you know, teammates have have, uh, passed. And I've always heard, you know, heard about this thing like a survivor's guilt. It's, uh, you know, why wasn't it me? You know, I wish it would have been me. But do you think, I mean, the dark part of that is kind of like an ego? You know, why wasn't it me? Um, they feel like maybe they should have died in battle rather than, you know, retired into the civilian world. And do you think that's a little part of when they retired that they feel like they survived their military and maybe there's another type of survivor's guilt, if that makes any sense? I think virtually anybody that served knows somebody that made the ultimate sacrifice. And, uh, and if not that, then they know somebody that's been maimed. And, mm-hmm. and each one of us had the opportunity for that to happen to us. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I, I have struggled myself with the fact that 12 guys died on a helicopter that 50-50 odds I could have been on. And, mm-hmm. uh, but then you can either regret and, and feel guilty about the fact that you're still here or you can live to honor that person and their sacrifice. And that's what exactly. I choose to do. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if they were here and you were feeling sorry for yourself, they would slap mm-hmm. the crap out of you and tell you to quit feeling sorry for yourself, but go make something happen. Uh, one, yep. one of the things that... We owe it to them. Yeah, Absolutely. The, the second veteran, and I know we're, we're getting up. I've been talking so much, it's almost up to an hour, so I don't know how long you guys go, but one of the. Yeah, we got uh, as long as you want, brother. Well, the other story is a veteran that just about a year after I left active duty, there was a mechanic that worked at the business that I was at that uh, had severe post traumatic stress from Desert Storm. Jumpy, mm-hmm. he was, I think he was probably abusing substances too, and, and he, was, he was a basket case. And I took him under my wing, and I, I helped him through that process. And and at one point, um, he he was, and I believe in tough love. He he was going through a crisis, and he wanted to come stay at my house. And I said, "There's no way in hell you're staying at my house. You're going to go check yourself mm-hmm. into a treatment facility." And uh, mm-hmm. and I I don't know if it was right or wrong, but it worked with him, and and he did. And uh, and he got the kind of help that he needed. And then after he came out, I reengaged with him. And, and you know, don't I didn't want him to be to feel bad or embarrassed about the fact that he had to do that. I wanted, wanted to tell him good job because it's it takes a lot of guts to go take that step. And then and yeah. now many years later, he his life is good and he's pursuing his dream. But that if I hadn't been there to to kind of take him under my wing and help him through that, I don't know where he would be today. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to blow myself up and take credit for stuff, but when you look at veterans that have issues out there, they the ones that have it the worst are the ones that isolate. And they isolate because 
they're they're a little bit off. They're not their job's not working, or they don't have a job. Their relationships aren't working. Mm-hmm. The VA isn't working. They're they're drinking or they're using some kind of substances, and and they're they will retreat within themselves, and they will. One of the things that I really do not like, and I have some good friends that are part of this stuff, but like one of the popular Facebook pages out there is titled Dysfunctional Veterans. What kind of message do we send people when we say it's okay, it's sexy, it's popular to call yourself dysfunctional? When you go down that path, it makes other people want to stay away from you, and and it reinforces the wrong stereotype about a veteran. But if somebody embraces that, oh, true. And they start going. I'm I'm a dysfunctional veteran. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna wear whatever stuff that says screw you. Anybody that I see, I mean, you, you know, some of these people. You go, you see them. They just have I hate the world written all over themselves. And it's like all you are doing is sabotaging your own success by doing that. You've got to change it. And I'm not saying you have to become like you know you're not like a a cake bread, you're going to be a copy of what everybody else is out there. No. But you, when you're in the military, you you achieve things and you get promoted because you have mutual respect, you work your ass off, and you're professional. It's the same way in the civilian world. You have to have mutual respect for other people, you have to work your ass off, and you have to be professional. And if you're not those things, you're going to have trouble. And uh, And so when somebody like that, when they start moving into that path, Another veteran that's like them because, you know, when I have a conversation with a ranger or an infantryman or a paratrooper, I can have the most uh, direct conversations with them possible because I am them. I've been through everything that they've been through. And so there's a mutual respect there and an understanding. I'm not a Marine. So when I talk to a Marine and I say, bud, you know, you might want to lighten up on what you're drinking, they can – very rightly tell me, you don't know me. You haven't been through what I've been through. How can you tell me what to do? Okay, you're right. But you know what? I got a Marine over here that's like you. Let me let me have that Marine talk to you. Female veteran? Mm-hmm. I'm not a female veteran. I have no concept of what they have gone through. But there are female mm-hmm. veterans that have transitioned, that, that have jobs that are established in the community. They can have a conversation with a female veteran, and they can tell them things. They can be the squad leader. And they can tell them, this is what you do. Watch these things. Don't do these things. You know, holler if you need help with something. And exactly. the problem that's happening nationally is we're not doing that. And that's the biggest concept that Gallant Few is pushing is every veteran – okay, let me back up just a minute. Census data says 6% of the U.S. population are veterans. Back in 2010, it was 10%, but the World War II veterans are dying. 6% today. Uh, A half a percent are under the age of 35. Okay, so 35 minus 15 is 20. We've been at war for 15 years, so half a percent of the population are post-9-11 veterans, younger post-9-11 veterans, right? So let's run the numbers. If you're in – and and let's make it easy because – you know, there's strong rangers and there's smart rangers, and I'm not exactly sure I was a smart ranger. So when you look at uh, a metro area, let's say there's 10 million people in a big metropolitan area, then how many veterans are there? 6%, right? So what's that? 60,000? Okay. Half a percent are going to be post 
So now you're talking about 5,000? So in a, in a population of 10 million people, there are potentially 55,000 veterans that are over the age of 35, which means they probably have transitioned, got jobs, they're established in the community, that are in a potential position where they can help 5,000 that are under the age of 35 that are still struggling with education, with work, with trying to figure out life. That's a 10 to 1 ratio. So how do we get that one and connect that one with some of the 10 that are out there you know, when, when, I was, uh, when I was running a United Rentals construction equipment branch, I wanted to hire veterans, but I couldn't find them. Send them to me. Mm -hmm. I will. It's like what Bill told me when he helped me transition. I don't care if you know the iron and sales. You can learn, and if you dedicate yourself to it and you have integrity, you'll be fine. I'll teach you. Mm -hmm. I felt the same way. I called the VA. I called the uh, Army Wounded Warrior at Fort Riley. Hey, send me veterans. Let me, and nobody would give me any veterans. And... Mm -hmm have part of that issue today. Part of it is you think it's only half a percent of the population. 10, 10 million people, that's only 5,000. That's not very many people. But I was looking at a study today that says that um, the, the, 20, the study the VA did on veteran suicide from 1979 to 2014 says that veterans are 25, 21 or 25 percent more likely to commit suicide than somebody who never served in the military. So take out the 20 a day, 22 a day, 18 a day, whatever that number, take that number out. It's 21 percent more likely than somebody who never put the uniform on. There is an issue there. Why is that? It gets a little more complicated because 65 percent of the veterans that take their own lives are over the age of 50. Mm -hmm. That's right. So there's a there's a whole lot that's going on into that, but and then there's one more thing that I'll throw at you because I am uh, I'm in the process of finishing up a book, just so you know. So you guys are like the first one to plug my future book on. It's called Common Transition, and uh, a lot of knowledge. It, well, that's what I'm trying to. I, I got to use my personal story and my failures and my successes to help other people understand how we can help more veterans. But mm -hmm. guess how many? If you take that 20 veterans a day commit suicide, how many is that in a year? I've already done the numbers, so I know it, so I don't have to do the head calculation. Yeah, 6,000. No. Over 7,000. Yeah, 7,000. Like 7,200. I, I would have to take my shoes off to do that math. I'm glad. I don't wear shoes, TJ. Counting? I don't wear shoes. How many people, and I'm, I'm, only saying, I'm only using this comparison for numbers comparison. I'm not trying to cast judgment on anything, but how many people – in a year, on average, do you suppose die of HIV/AIDS? It's about 6,700. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so fewer people die of AIDS every year than veterans commit suicide. How much money does the U.S. government spend on AIDS prevention yeah. on a yearly basis? Just guess. Hardly much. Billions. billions. How, how many billions do you think? Five. Oh, wow. What's that? I'd say five. Go higher. Really? What? Wow. Come on, give me a number. Be brave. Sixteen. Ten. More. Your the, the number's list. Right. Uh, ten. Ten. 
$27 billion a year the U.S. government spends on AIDS education. Now, guess where I'm going? How many yeah. – what do you think the U.S. government spends on health, on mental health for veterans every year? What's the VA's budget about for mental million. health? It's it's about $7 billion. It's one-fourth. It's one-fourth of the amount of money that is spent on AIDS prevention. And more veterans commit suicide than people die of AIDS. And with AIDS, you know, the, I was going to say with AIDS, I mean, the guys, it, it's, you know, it's a death. But with veterans, if you recycle and you actually help them, they are always contribute contributing to society regardless i've heard stories when they go to the va they they're not there they don't want the money they don't want the help they just don't want to be broken and they want to continue to contribute to society so if we were able to spend more money on our veterans it would just be beneficial for them to contribute back into society it's you know all of the all of the hassle some of the um, biggest tragedies that happen is because of the administrative bureaucracy of the VA and their failure to timely mm-hmm. rate and compensate veterans that are really hurting. There's a, mm-hmm. a veteran that last month in Raleigh, North Carolina, are you familiar? You may have talked about this on the show, that mm-hmm. committed suicide in the VA parking garage. No, he's I a, didn't know that. He's an older veteran and uh, and he had been fighting with the VA and fighting with the VA about getting a getting his disability rating, and uh, and and the VA finally and he had all the other resources. He'd gotten a service dog a month before. The, there were organizations that were helping him, and then the VA came back and said, "Nope, you're denied." So he went into the VA parking garage and pulled out a 22 and shot himself and they didn't find his body for six days in his car in the VA parking garage. Now, I, I tell you that if you take $7 billion that they spend on mental health or, or $27 billion that you spend on AIDS education and prevention uh, and just say, you know what, if, if let's give the benefit of the doubt to a veteran that has some some emotional things going on, and okay, so maybe somebody gets 100% disability that shouldn't have it, but how mm-hmm. many guys like this kill themselves because the VA has jerked them around so many times that they're hopeless and they don't have anything left? I mean, that's mm-hmm. that is too many, uh, too many, way too many. It's 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 yeah. worth it's worth somebody getting over on the system, and if you find them, smush them. But but don't deny the people that need it the most because you have a bureaucratic freaking process that doesn't work. You know, you brought up one of the things that, uh, that that's definitely very near and dear to my heart, and it's uh, something that that aggravates me, um, me fired up. Um, you know, you talked about the guys who have been in the thick of shit um been in in and through the valley of the shadow of death and been there done that and they're too proud to go in and 
make a claim with the VA. They're too proud to say, hey, you know what? I've been fucked up. I need some help. Um, but then yet you have these – I'll say it because I don't give a shit. This is Like I said, I pay for my radio time. Um, you got these fucking soup suckers um, who have been deployed, and and please, please do not – Misunderstand what I'm saying. The National Guard and the Reserves, they play a vital part in our, our war on terrorism and in defending our country. But you got these fucking soup suckers who never left the Ford operating base, never gone anywhere, never done anything. They twisted their fucking ankles. They pulled their fucking back, picking up a fucking uh, a box of fucking MREs or whatever. And... They follow these fucking comp, you know these. Oh, I'm wound. I'm a wounded warrior, and they go to these fucking wounded warrior battalions, and get processed, and they get every single freaking bit of respect and benefits that a true combat warrior gets, and that shit pisses me off to no end. And then you have um, you have some of the the. Mm-hmm true combat warriors that they feel like it would be beneath them to go apply for those kinds of things because they've been taught mm-hmm. to suck it up and drive on and they probably haven't reported uh, their the IED blast that gave them a TBI because they're afraid they might have to leave their team. You know, there there's uh, all kinds of instances mm-hmm. that we see all the time where especially with Rangers and 160 and special operations folks, they they don't have injuries in their medical records because they don't report them because, mm-hmm. you know, three years I served in a ranger battalion. I, I secretly had the PA give me 800 milligram Motrin bottles every month, so I took three a day because my back was, was always jacked up. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that because th- then I might be removed from the unit. And and then that never gets right. my records, and, and then the VA doesn't want to recognize that condition for me. So, so yeah, that's that's an issue, you know. But I think that there's was a, a danger. stigma. There, there's a danger. That was a in, stigma that lasted out there, Carl. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that was a stigma that lasted for a very long time. That uh, members of JSOC, which is the Joint Special Operations Command, you know, members of mm-hmm. Tier One units, and Tier Two units who supported them. Um, if you came out and said, hey, I've got a problem, uh, I need to talk to a counselor, I need to talk to a psychologist or a um, any type of behavioral health issue, you know, there was this stigma mm-hmm. that if you did that, you were a piece of it's shit. You were worthless. That still there. Um, it's yeah, still there. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm here to tell you 100% that's not the case. Um, it, our brothers have gone through and I say it all the time, you know, they've been through the valley of the shadow of death, been back. Just because you feel having issues, it's not going to affect your security clearance. It's not going to affect your position as a squad leader in the Ranger Battalion. It's not going to affect but, your But you can't, you can't say that because that's not true. That is absolutely not true. That's the problem with the system right now is that stigma still exists. And somebody mm. at the 06 or the one star or the commence our major level can say that doesn't exist, but it exists. Because I'll tell you right it now, does, yeah. there is not mm-hmm. – can, can you imagine an E3 and a Ranger squad going to his team leader and saying, hey, Sergeant, I'm going to 
I have an appointment. I can't tell you where I'm going. I'll be gone for a couple hours, and then I'll be back. That is not going to happen. Yeah, it absolutely does. It does exist. Um, and I can tell you, you know, as a as a guy who spent nine years in the 160th, um, I was very concerned about that. Um, and one of the things I reached out to, because I had some very significant events um, that affected me, which um, the first and foremost um, – shit that I was involved in. But, uh, the crash of tail number 185 on uh, Bagram or right outside of Bagram at uh, East River Range was one of our daps doing a, a, you know, a normal gunnery um, to maintain their currency um, crashed and four, four of my crew members um, lost life on that. Uh, and then in less than 30 days, I worked in Air Force um, HH-60 crash um, which was the four members and the two PJs lost their life in that crash. You know, that unless you're, a, unless you're up, a psychopath, but you know what? Un- unless you're a psychopath, the things that we do in these units is going to affect you. And what we need to say is everybody's affected. Whether you admit it or not, you're all affected. So you, it, it's not an option to go spend an hour talking to a counselor, every one of you guys is going to do it. And you can sit there and play checkers if you don't want to talk about something. But you're going to go in there, you're going to sit down, you're going to have the opportunity. And make it mandatory. Then it's not, there's no stigma because everybody's going, right? I, in my opinion, that's one of the ways that you fix that. Mm-hmm. Another way that you fix it is you take the best and brightest that are selected for special units and you put them in charge of some of those recovery programs. Like mm-hmm. one of the biggest issues that the big army has had is abuse in the wounded warrior units, right, where they activate some E6 that's never been anywhere, and that E6 goes on a power trip because he's got a platoon full of wounded warriors that have been to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he's got to prove that his gonads are as big as he's them. A bad man. You know, he's exactly. never been anywhere, right? So he's going to – I'll give you a quick example – Mike Schlitz. Everybody knows Mike, right? I love uh, Mike. Double hand amputee, looks like a potato chip because he's burned so bad. And uh, he's down, when he's still on active duty, he's in San Antonio and he's assigned to the Wounded Warrior unit there. And they want him to be at 6 a.m. accountability formation every day of the week. And uh, And Mike says, okay, that can't happen because, first off, I don't have any hands, so I can't drive. And because I don't have any hands, I can't dress myself because I'm still learning that process. And because of the stuff that's going on in my head and my body recovering, I get these meds that knock me out for at least eight hours, if not ten hours. And so my mom has to dress me and feed me and drive me. So what you're saying is for me to be, because I'm an E7 and I'll have to live in the barracks, that to make your 6 a.m. formation – that means I have to get up at 2 in the morning so that I can take the hours that I need to get all my stuff together and put on and make the drive into the formation. And then because I have to get up at 2 in the morning and my meds are eight hours long, that means I have to take my, I have to go to sleep at like 4 in the afternoon. And now I have to make my mom do all this. Mike's like, you can pound sand. No, you can shove way. it right up your butt. And, uh, and, and his – what's that? I also had to do my rehab in you know in 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 between minutes. Yeah. 
Well, and and the the chain of command there is like, no, you have to. We're giving you an order to. And Mike says, pounce hand. I'm not doing it. And and he was able to get away with it because he's an E7 mm-hmm. and a ranger instructor, mm-hmm. and because he's Mike Schlitz. What's an E3 going to do or an E5? And they're going to be railroaded. And uh, and and if we really cared about the process for them to heal from the beginning, we would take a captain that has been identified to serve in the Ranger Regiment, and we would have them go command a, a warrior transition unit for six months before they go serve in the regiment. We would ha- take a battalion commander or a command sergeant major and have them rotate in for six months because then they would see what's going on. They would Im- imbue leadership, and they would fix those issues. And instead, you see, shoot, even just within the last six months, there's a big article in the Dallas Morning News about abuses in the Fort Hood warrior transition system because they have piss-poor leaders that have never been anywhere that abuse those that are trying to recover. You know, they make a guy that's got recovering from a broken back, they make him pull CQ all night long at the CQ (laughs) desk. That kind of stuff happens all the time, and it's unacceptable, unacceptable. But anyway, I I really, I strayed way off base with going into that one. You know what, Carl, I I definitely have to say. uh, It needs to be said. I've, I've got a good friend. Uh, and I'll go ahead and drop his name. His name is uh, Captain Kelly. Uh, he was a medical platoon leader in uh, one of the Ranger Battalions, and he later uh, became a company commander at the Fort Knox Warrior Transition Battalion. Uh, he was a great WTD company commander um, because he had been there and done that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Captain Kelly was was one of the the best company commanders. Uh, in WTB because, like I said, he is a guy who has been there and done that. And even his hands were tied, you know, because, like I said, and I, and I don't want to talk shit, but I, I'll tell you the straight up truth. Uh, there is so much fraud, waste, and abuse in the WTBs these days of guys who are soup suckers, uh, guys who are taking the funk um, that have absolutely – not been there, done, not been, not been there, not done that, and they are part of the Warrior Transition Battalion who are getting the same rights and privileges as combat-wounded veterans. Uh, you know, it makes me sick to my stomach because I saw that for years at Fort Knox, Kentucky, um, where I had to watch guys who were full of shit um, mm-hmm. as being members of the Wounded Warrior Battalion um, and I'll give you a good example. I won't drop any names, but you know what? Um, when I first got to Fort Knox, uh, I was in charge of the emergency room. And so any intakes for guys who came from theater to Fort Knox, and I'm talking came straight from theater, they went to Germany, um, they left from Germany, and their home, home of record or home station was Fort Knox. They had to do their intakes at Fort Knox in the ER. And I had a kid who stands out, um, definitely stands out in my mind. The kid was a uh, machine gunner uh, in a gun turret in a Humvee, and he got here with an RPG and absolutely was blown to shit. His left and right legs and his abdomen were absolutely full of... um, shrapnel, and that kid, when he got evacuated, 
to Fort Knox, he said, you know what? I walked onto the plane that brought me to Afghanistan. I'm going to walk off the plane when I get back in the States. So when he landed at Fort Knox, Kentucky, um, at the airfield here on Fort Knox, he walked off the plane. He absolutely refused to be on a litter or a gurney. And he said, I walked onto the plane when I went into country. I'm going to walk off when I get back into my country. And this kid was a no-shit combat wounded warrior. And he had the intestinal fortitude to say, they're not going to keep me down. I can't wait to get out of this WTB. I can't wait to get away from this place. All I want to do is get back and be in the fight. That's the kind of dudes, <clears throat> that's the kind of soldiers uh, who have, I have nothing but the utmost respect for. Those are the kind of guys that we're fighting for. And the guys who twisted their ankle in a fob who've never left the base, you know what? I hope you're happy telling your bullshit war stories. There's guys who've been in the thick of of it and actually suffered and sacrificed their blood, or their blood, sweat, and tears in defense of our freedom and in defense of our country against the global war on terrorism. Those are the true wounded warriors. And if you got a problem with that, you know what? Suck it. I don't care. Because I've been there enough times to say, if you haven't been in the thick of thin and you're drawing 100% disability because you're some jackass who never left the fob, I hope you can live with yourself and know that there are individuals who have been in combat, who've lost limbs, who've suffered immense sacrifices, and they're scared or they're ashamed to put in a veteran's disability compensation packet. Those are the true American heroes. Those are the true guys who make a difference and who have made a difference uh, in the fight for our freedom. Yeah, I, I agree with you, except that I, I think that uh, there are going to be folks that don't deserve it that slip through and get those ratings. Mm-hmm. And uh, And the more scrutiny that we put on that, the more people that actually deserve it are not going to get it. So me personally, I'm okay with some of those people getting that because if it's relaxed a little bit, then more of the people that really deserve it are going to get it and get it easier. And uh, it's not like the government's going to run out of money. They're just going to print more. And and then mm-hmm. let God judge those that abuse the system to the point where they, they line their own pockets with it. They Like you said, they have to live with themselves. But unfortunately, what happens now is you've got shit, Mike Mike Schlitz. The three times the VA denied him 100% disability because they said they didn't have enough documentation of his wounds. And Mike's like, my God, you're taking pictures of me naked. How much more documentation do you need? I can absolutely appreciate that. And Alex, you met Mike. You spent some time time with uh, Yeah. I seen him in his So anybody who says that, that Mike doesn't deserve that is absolutely a fucking walking abortion to Crazy. what the sacrifices <laughs> that we that our soldiers have made to our fucking our country and our freedom. You know, Mike Schlitz is a fucking absolute um 
he is the epitome of an American warrior mm-hmm. and a wounded warrior. And I fucking hate damn term wounded warriors. Um, because so many of the, the worthless piece of shits who don't deserve that term or that title title. And it, it, it honestly, you know, Carl, it makes me want to throat punch people when I hear that fucking term. Um, because I've seen so many people who they don't even have, you know, they don't have a clue what sacrifice means. And they've, they've received this title of wounded war. And Mike Schlitz absolutely is the fucking epitome of a wounded warrior. And he doesn't like that title. I know he doesn't. No, no you know what? <laughs> yeah, he likes, like someone saying, you know, oh, you're a hero. You know what? Real heroes don't like that fucking title. You know what their yeah. response is? I was just doing my job. Yeah, my Mike, job yes. I'm, a, I'm exactly. an example of a bad day in Iraq. Yes, he would say that, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, Mike Schlitz is a fucking a diehard, 100% unadulterated fucking example of what a true warrior hero is. Um, because he he absolutely says, you know what? Yeah, I'm not a hero. I'm not a, I'm not a fucking wounded warrior. I was just doing my job, and that's what the real fucking heroes and real men who have sacrificed, you know, you know, Orson Welles talked about, uh, you know, one of the, the very famous in the special operations community about Orson Welles is uh, rough men stand ready to do violence on your, ha- on your behalf while you, you know, sleep peacefully in your house. That's absolutely 100% true. The men who are doing violence on our behalf while we sleep peacefully in our beds, those are the men who fucking say, hey, you know, I'm a wounded warrior. Hey, I need help. Those are the men who say, fuck you. I was just doing my job, and I don't need fucking special representation or special, you know, achievements for what I've done. I was just doing my job. And those are the fucking unsung heroes of our freedom. I want to go public on the record here, too, and say that I've slept with Mike Schlitz. Okay, just You just probably so. have, Carl. I, I already clear. knew that. I've seen your video. <laughs> we shared He's a bed in a hotel in New York. Okay, there. It, it, it's out. <laughs> hey, this is that not is that hilarious. kind of show, I love Carl how Munger. close you two are, though. <laughs> I didn't this, know you guys were that close. This is not fucking untold secrets to the Ranger Regiment, so uh, we'll just leave that alone. <laughs> well, Mike says with his hooks, it's not gay if he can't feel it, so... He's ripped my pants with those hooks, giving me a I'm, hug. I'm not surprised. <laughs> that would be his excuse anyway. He doesn't know his own strength. <laughs> you know, one of my, uh, you know, I've, Alex, there's no no doubt that Alex Maltizo is one of my best friends. Um, she's actually, I love you too, bestie. And, and you know, she's, she's freaking coined me into or, or gotten me to use when I say that. Um, no homo. But you know, Alex. No homo. Um, <laughs> Alex is definitely one of my best and closest friends. And Aww, I love you. I've seen pictures of Alex and Mike Schlitz together, and you know, Mike is no shit the epitome of what a ranger is. He's not looking for any fucking sympathy. 
he's not looking for any you know, benefits. You know, he never he's served in regiment. Like, I'm, I agree with you. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, you going back to your that. opening comments to the show tonight. Yeah, so he's he's Carl. Am I wrong? Is he's a ranger qualified individual? Correct. He's a ranger in my book. I mean, yeah, that, that goes back, back to that argument when when you know I just, I have low tolerance for people that say you're not a real ranger if you didn't serve in regiment or you're not a real ranger if you don't have a tab. I just have low tolerance for that mm-hmm. because Mike's got a tab. Mike was a ranger instructor. Mike's a ranger. And uh, and if anybody has a problem with that, then come talk to me. You know, and, and I. Uh... That was beat into my mind very early um, in my upbringing because uh, my brother was uh, – he was a senior when I was a freshman. Uh, he graduated high school, went to uh, went to basic, went to OSIT, um, was 11 Bravo, graduated uh, OSIT, and then went straight to RIP um, to second – Battalion 75th Ranger Regiment, went to Ranger School, and uh, he spent five years in uh, 275. And so that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, when I was, still I came in the Army. What's that? Mm-hmm. I said, and he's still serving our country. Yeah, he's still serving our country as a contractor for uh, one of the uh, three letter agencies. Um, but, you know, my brother, I can remember. When I was private in the regular army, and uh, you know I was in a regular infantry battalion, and and I used to call. I was I was stationed in Korea, and I would call my brother when I was on fire guard um, in the arms room. That tells you how old I am. And uh, I would call him, and I'd call up to two seven five at Fort Lewis, Washington, call, and somebody would answer the phone in Alpha Company two seven five, and you know I'd tell him, hey, this is Private or PFC Porter calling for uh, Sergeant Langley and whoever it was, specialist so-and-so was, hey, hey, Sergeant Langley, there's some fucking private on the phone for you. He'd be like, who is it? And, you know, they'd tell him as PFC Porter, some fucking leg, and he'd be like, fuck you, you son of a bitch, that's my brother, get out and push. And he'd make him fucking stay in the front lane and rest the whole time I was talking to him. Um, <laughs> that very much beat into my head. So when I left... Korea, my first duty station, I went to the 101st. I can remember um, being in the company quarters. I was uh, the senior medic for Charlie Company, 2nd to the 502nd. And one of my, or actually my first sergeant at the time, um, his name escapes me at, at the moment, his last name, but his first name was Sean. He was actually in Somalia with 375. Um, so he was a 375 Ranger. He was my first sergeant in this company. And I can remember him making, you know, E2s, E3 standard parade rest for E4s in the company. And uh, him saying those same exact things. You know what? If, uh, if you're not Ranger tab, you're not a fucking Ranger. If you're not from and you're not a writer. And I can remember him just smoking the absolute shit out of all these guys who thought they were the cat's ass. And I remember sitting in a freaking company training meeting one day with the scout platoon sergeant for our unit. And him saying, 
know, Ranger this, Ranger that. And I'm like, hey, uh, hey, Sergeant, what battalion did you serve in? Well, I was never in battalion. I'm like, oh, so you're just Ranger qualified. And I remember him smoking the absolute out of me fat. And I looked at him and said, you know what? You're still just Ranger qualified. You're not from Ranger Battalion. You're Ranger qualified. And I remember calling my brother and telling him that, and he would just laughed. And he was like, yep, that's that's the truth. And, uh, uh, that you know, that kind of stuff sticks in my mind, you know, because sure. that's the yeah. deep respect that I have for Ranger qualified slash real Rangers who have been in battalion. And then my 160th, you know, I spent nine years in the 160th and did nothing but JSOC support. So I know the difference between guys who have been in battalion guys who haven't um so you know i have nothing but the utmost respect for guys from battalion so i'm actually looking at the gallant few website Mm -hmm. um i love hearing your backstory for the first time carl and you and i have known each other for many years but i love that you have you are not alone on the website and knowing that I just wanted to say um, usually it's like the ones who had to do without when you were talking about not having your father or not having certain things um, never are always on the mission to make sure that others don't have to be without, you know, without mission, without purpose. And I just wanted to say thank you, you know, for giving other people that purpose and for being a beacon of a beacon of light for others so they can do the same uh, for for their other teammates. So thank you so much. Um, well, the, Alex, I also this, do is, want... this is my purpose. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really, I struggled for almost 20 years after I left active duty until I, I found my purpose and this is my purpose. So we've kind of, Carl, we've kind of talked a, a lot about your history, um, but we haven't really touched much on Gallant Few. So tell us about what, what started Gallant Few made you decide yeah, to I warned you earlier when I started talking, first. right? Hey, that's all right. That's why I scheduled this show for two hours. <clears throat> so so what started Gallant Few was uh, back in 2003, I went through a divorce. And uh, as I was trying to maintain some form of supervision over my daughters. Somebody told me about this new thing called MySpace and Facebook. Oh boy. And uh and so I made them friend me on both, which they weren't real thrilled about. And after I did that, uh, I connected with a ranger and then I connected with another ranger and then Something I I found out about LinkedIn, and I went on LinkedIn and and connected with rangers there. And by now I had been doing construction equipment sales and marketing for a while, <clears throat> and I I knew the value of professional networking. And I thought, holy cow, I want to be part of a ranger network on these social media groups. And so I searched for them, and there weren't any. So I created U.S. Army Rangers on LinkedIn which now has almost 7,000 members, if I remember right. And, uh, and I created the, U- the U.S. Army Ranger Association Facebook page on Facebook, which since has closed down because there are so many other Ranger groups that it became redundant. 
but at, at the peak when I was managing it, it had probably 3,500, maybe 4,000 rangers in it. And uh, so go forward now several years, 2009, there's 1,000 rangers in the LinkedIn group that I had personally verified, and it's a mix of ranger tabs. It's a mix of ranger scrolls, guys that have both, guys that served in Korea, the Korean War Rangers, Vietnam Rangers, LERPs. I mean, there's a whole mix of Rangers in there. And because I was, I verified each one. I made them tell me their Ranger class number. I made them tell me their chain of command. I became acquainted with these thousand guys. And through that process, when one of them needed to look for a job someplace or if they were going through whatever, they invariably would say, hey, I'm looking for a job in Chicago. Do you know anybody in Chicago? And I would say, yeah, I'll, I'll find somebody there. And, oh, by the way, send me your resume. And they'd send me their resume, and I'd go, oh, my God, who helped you write the resume? Oh, the ACAP program did. Well, I'd like to slap whoever helped you that because they're not <laughs> doing you a favor. So because by this time I, I had in civilian business, I'd been in charge of over 60 employees. I had a budget of about $8 million in sales. And I knew what I looked for when I hired people, and, and I knew what – didn't work on a resume and the resume that I presented to that oil and gas company when I left active duty was like the ones these guys were bringing to me so you can't lift your NCOER job description off of your NCOER and put it on your resume okay it just nobody gives a crap that you were in charge of the arms room and had 2.5 million dollars worth of whatever it that doesn't that doesn't fly so I was helping them rewrite it into terms that uh, a potential employer would appreciate, but then beyond that, I would I would target, I would use LinkedIn, and I would find someone <clears throat> that was in the industry or the company in the area where they wanted to go work, and I would make a phone call or I'd send an email, and I would say, hey, here's this, there's a person here, I'm going to personally vouch for them, you don't know me, but I want you to take a look at them, and so I started helping guys get hired that way. If I'd have been if I'd have had two brains about me, I would have created my own headhunting firm, and I'd probably be super rich right now. But uh, but I didn't do that. I just I helped connect people, and and I learned about some of the struggles that they were going through with TBI and post-traumatic stress. And in fact, in uh, in 2003, when Joe Votel changed command from the Ranger Regiment, he invited me to come to the change of command, and uh, and so I I showed up. And I didn't know what to expect, but I got there, and he had had his uh, adjutant prepare uh, a seat. There was a front row seat with my name laminated to the doggone thing where all the generals and the VIPs were. So it was it was really a cool experience and very honored. I was very honored and humbled that he thought enough of me to put me up in that group. And, and But through all of this process, I'm learning about – the pace of deployment, the fray, physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, with families and all of that. And and all of that built to where in 2009, I would come home from work and I would spend three or four hours on my laptop connecting rangers and trying to help them out. And uh, I started coming up with a concept of a ranger buddy system. I actually wrote a white paper 
about rangers mentoring rangers and and answered there was an open thing with the like the national institute of health from the government where they were asking for innovative solutions for post-traumatic stress and uh, they sent me a nice letter that said thanks but no thanks that's a dumb idea and uh, mm-hmm. so i i kept gelling this thing in my head and then on veterans day weekend in 2009 i went uh the POW network over in Missouri does a big deal in Branson. And I went and represented the U S army ranger association at that event, had a great weekend there with my wife. We needed a weekend away. I get back to my job and find out that I'd been laid off because the economy after, well, 2009, the economy everywhere went down, but my, the company I worked for took a big hit and it was a family owned business and I wasn't a family member. So I got laid off. And uh, and I spent the next six months trying to decide, do I make a nonprofit? Do I try to do my own business? Because I swore I'd made this company a lot of money. I swore I'm not going to work for anybody else again that doesn't appreciate what I do for them. I'm going to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I ended up going full tilt onto the nonprofit side. And the, my buddy Bill, who had mentored me, hired me to work in construction equipment, I, he and I were having a beer at a restaurant at a bar in uh, in Wichita, and I was telling him about my experience going back to the change of command and what I was seeing with all these rangers and how I thought that connecting veterans with other veterans like Big Brothers Big Sisters was a very valid way to help veterans transition, whether they were rangers or, or tankers or marines or whatever, and uh, and like a true leader does, right? He smiled, he reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, he kept a $100 bill folded up behind his driver's license for emergencies, pulled it out, put it on the – like slapped it down on the table in front of me and said, get started. And that was the first donation to Gallifew. And uh, so over the next over the next year, we did all the paperwork to make it a nonprofit. He became one of the first board members. But his challenge to me was, uh, I know that you're very close to the ranger community. He said, but I'm an infantry guy. I'm not a ranger. Never jumped out of airplanes. So you have to help people that are not rangers also. So he put a, a charge on me from the very beginning to expand the the focus of the organization. And so and we started off saying we'll we'll help any veteran with an honorable discharge and we've changed that. We'll help any veteran. I don't care what kind of discharge you have. When I talk to you, if I find out that you're a criminal, then I won't have anything to do with you. But there's an awful lot of veterans out there that have other than honorable discharges because of misbehavior that's tied directly to post-traumatic stress or TBI. And uh, so, you know, we, we try and work through all of that. So that Gallifu became a real nonprofit in 2010, and uh, and we've been growing ever since then. And now uh, here we are in 2017. We've got four employees, and I've got three contract employees, and we have a special focused program on the Marine Corps Special Operations and 0311 series, which are their infantrymen, that's called the Raider Project. We have a focused mm-hmm. program for Rangers, both Ranger Qualified and Ranger Regiment, called the Darby Project. We have an Air Force program that is still in the fledgling stage, that's called Wings Level. And uh, and any veteran that doesn't fit within one of those existing programs goes into Gallant Few, and I personally manage their whatever issue they have going on. And, uh, and I deal with veterans. Today I spoke with uh, a, a 
11 Bravo with a, several combat deployments that then became a recruiter, did nine years on active duty, and his last year on active duty, his life fell apart. He, he uh, went through a divorce. He ended up uh, abusing substances, came up hot on a piss test, and got an other than honorable discharge, got, a, I think, a general. And, uh, and, and now he, can't, he doesn't qualify for VA voc rehab. And he, he can trace, based on our conversation, he can trace his misbehavior to things that happened in the military that, that because he wasn't able to get the kind of mental help that he needed, forced him to self-medicate. And, and I think that's valid in his case. Uh, it's not valid in every case, but I think it is. It is. And uh, but now he's he doesn't have any income, so he is going through a divorce, got no income, got child support, got you know bills out the wazoo, wasn't able to pay insurance, so his driver's license got suspended because he didn't have valid insurance, and now he can't drive. And you get somebody like that that uh, was referred to me by somebody else that's a very well-known veteran that worked with this guy and said this is a good guy. He he does not deserve to be in the situation that he's in. You know that we got to figure out how to help veterans that are in those kind of very difficult situations. And other organizations that are out there, they cherry pick the easy ones, and they they don't want to sit down and go, why are you in the situation that you're? Okay, so you need you need five hundred dollars to make your car payment and keep your phone on. Why? Other organizations will go, okay, yeah, we'll do a $500 grant one time. Here you go. But that doesn't resolve the issue. We may or may not help somebody out financially, but you're going to have an extremely painful conversation with me that goes into the details of why the hell you are in the situation you're in. And if you're not honest with me about that, then we're not interested in helping you. you got to be brutally honest because I'm going to be brutally honest. And... uh, I make I make veterans that I work with put their finances on a spreadsheet. I want to know when you get paid X amount of dollars, when does it come in, what are your existing bills, why in the hell are you paying for HBO when you can't afford to pay your house? Okay, so you know, we're going to have some conversations. What's that? Carl, that's definitely, uh, you know, there are exceptions to the rules, and uh, and I think that that's very important, um, and I, I'm very happy that you brought um, There are exceptions to the rules. Um, there are guys, absolutely, who are worthy of receiving our help and our support uh, as a nation um, who, who deserve that help. Um, you know what? you're you're speaking and you've brought up a perfect example of guys who need our help and that's why we exist that's why all of these nonprofits exist is to help you know those what? guys this out guy, and, I would never have had the phone conversation I had today if his buddy hadn't figured out he was in distress and reached out to me and said will you help my friend so how and, many veterans are out that are going through things exactly. like that, that nobody identifies it, raises a flag, says, hey, my buddy Joe over here needs a little bit of help. What can we do? And then and then they be- end up becoming a statistic because their life gets to the point where they're just like, screw it. And I, I definitely want to but say, you know what, uh, it, all veterans' lives matter, period. 
Um, you know, I, I talk, I, I raise a lot of shit about them. guys who haven't been in combat, who haven't been to the target or who haven't been to the X or even the Y and, uh, they're tapping or applying for these, uh, benefits. But you know what? All veterans' lives matter. Uh, we're here to support all of our veteran brothers and sisters. I've, I've talked to veterans that, that have never been in combat, but they were victims of military sexual trauma. And and that's 100% true. They were true. abused in some horrific ways, and and the system totally failed them. And and so that's why you know, I urge anybody that looks at somebody that's applying for a disability or that's going through something – you can't you can't rank order their service because you don't know what happened and and are some dirt bags going to slip through? Yep, some dirt bags are going to slip through. But if we tighten it down too much and 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 we we really you know squeeze them, then people that need to get that help that really deserve it are not going to get it. So we just we have to be careful. Absolutely, Jeff. Uh, do you and, have some thoughts on that, brother? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and one of the things that that I'm so excited, I, I'm so grateful for the Gallant Few and and for what you're doing, Carl, and is that you reach out to that person and that person gets help. Well, guess what? They're going to tell their friend and they're going to tell their ranger buddy and they're going to tell another military member. And and so it's it's a it, it's an exponential helping curve because we're helping each other because we're the only ones that can help each other. And and that that's you, you just hit on what you, you know. just said right there is absolutely it's brilliant and it's priceless and it is the the foundation of what we do because the civilian community has no concept they don't understand and they don't care and they may say that they do and they may put a yellow sticker on their car or on their tree or whatever but they don't <laughs> they don't understand and they're really not going to do can't. anything about it but yeah. our community. Yeah. We are the ones that have to take care of our community, and we've got to do things like create no uh, obligation, no expense opportunities where veterans can come together in a non-threatening environment where there is no alcohol once a month. And one of the things that we've been, Gallifrey has talked about since 2010, are once-a-month veteran breakfasts. You know, pick a... Mm -hmm. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever branch of the service you're from, doesn't matter. Pick a doggone breakfast place, a greasy spoon that's in your neighborhood, and go on social media, find the Facebook page that's First Saturday Veteran Breakfast, and post it on there and help let us help share it and call your the newspapers. You know, they got a free thing where you say, Yeah, hey, I have an event, I have a veteran a free veteran breakfast at Joe's Diner Saturday morning the 3rd of March and, and 9 o'clock in the morning, any veterans welcome. And we started doing that here in my little neighborhood, Trophy Club, Texas, which is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, a year and a half ago. And first it was me, read the paper, and then it was me and two other veterans, <laughs> you know, having coffee and a breakfast taco and reading the paper. And the one that we did a month ago had 35 veterans at it. And we had a veteran that stood up and talked about his experience in Afghanistan. We had another one that talked up that stood up and talked about his experience in Vietnam. We had a Vietnam veteran who flew a gunship in Vietnam that 
was in tears because, as he's telling his story because no one had ever asked him to tell his story before. And we mm-hmm. wanted to hear it. And, and so these, now what's happened is, is these groups come together, and now I have people that are like, oh, hey, uh, by the way, uh, my, uh, I know my friend whose son is having trouble getting a job. They're a veteran. It starts, it opens up, it starts to build the network. It starts to build that spider web in a community that needs to catch the veterans that are going through an issue before it becomes a major thing. And, and it needs to get to the point where when somebody moves to a community, somebody says, oh, you're a veteran? Oh, you know what? At the first or the second Saturday of every month over there at Joe's Tacos, there's a bunch of veterans that get together, and uh, you should go. That kind of thing needs to happen in every community across the country, and, uh, and it needs to be, like I said, no alcohol, because if veterans can't get together without alcohol, there's a problem. And it needs to be free because... Well, you got to buy your own coffee and breakfast. Now, I'm not going to pay for everybody's breakfast tacos, but you don't pay 20 bucks to go to a buffet, which there, we have some that do that, and I don't like it, because if you have somebody mm-hmm. that doesn't have a job, they're not going to go. So mm-hmm. um, if, you, if you can't afford breakfast, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Come and sit down and talk to us, and let's, let's figure out what's going on and, and get you connected. And, uh, and, and it has turned into something <laughs> that is important. But it's not. We're scratching the surface. There's just, you know, we're we're a little tiny piece in the whole big picture, and it needs. Gal, a few doesn't need to get bigger, but what we do needs to get bigger. Absolutely, Carl. I, I hate to stop you, brother, but we got about two minutes and seconds left. Um, you said I want to send a shout out before. real quick. <laughs> I only booked it for two hours tonight, um, and I maybe should have booked it for longer. Two hours and 15 or two minutes and 15 seconds left. Uh, I got to send a shout out to uh, a couple of the guys who uh, we're well connected with and kind of sponsor us. And uh, we, we do things with, and that's the uh, VSA or veteran sportsman's Alliance. Uh, if you've never heard of the veteran sportsman's Alliance, please get on Facebook, check them out. Um, Brett Johnson is the co-founder with his daughter, Cheyenne. Um, they do a lot of great things for combat wounded veterans. Check out VSA or Veteran Sportsman's Alliance. Definitely got to sh- send a shout out to uh, Dr. Jeff Falkel, who is also one of my co-hosts uh, with Junior Bulls. Um If you need a pen that will absolutely write anywhere, and it's one of the most badass pens around. Junior's Bullet Pins. Uh, Dr. Jeff Falco runs that uh, uh, organization uh, in memory of his son, Staff Sergeant uh, Chris Kilden in action. I uh, want to send a shout out to Veteran Search and Recovery Organization, who definitely reaches out, finds veterans who are suicidal, and uh, tries to catch them before they make that fatal flaw of taking their own life. Um, Gal- Gallant Few, um, Carl Munger, uh, who's a retired from 75th Ranger Regiment, who was our guest tonight, and the Gallant Few. Uh, definitely want to say thanks for coming on the show tonight. I want to send a shout-out to a young lady that I met on an airplane last week, uh, Nicole Nash, who is part of – she is part of the Archery Trade Association and uh, who has volunteered to be a part of uh, helping veterans in their recovery. Um, Nicole, thank you for uh, 
your friendship. Thank you for reaching out and uh, volunteering to be a part of reaching out to veterans. And uh, Carl, real quick, we got about 30 seconds. I want to say uh, give us a shout-out for Gallant Few and how guys can find out about you guys. Hey, thank you. Gallantfew.org, G-A-L-L-A-N-T-F-E-W, few, not like not very many. Gallantfew.org, uh, there's a veteran sign-up on there. We need uh, We need guides. We need veterans that can help mentor other veterans. And then if you need help, sign up there. We call you a future guide because, like somebody said earlier, once you get through your stuff, you can help somebody else. Absolutely. We're definitely uh, – we just ended our live podcast. Uh, it still continues to record. Um, the Hot Wash every Wednesday night from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All of our episodes are um, on iTunes, if you'd like to reach out uh, and listen to our our shows, uh, maybe not live, but you can listen to them on uh, the podcast. Um, they're archived on iPod, or excuse me, on iTunes. Um, all you have to do is uh, the hot wash. It'll bring up our episodes. You can go to www.blogtalkradio.com and type in the hot wash. And definitely uh, we want to say we're here for our brothers and sisters um, first and foremost, to take care of them and try and prevent them from taking their own lives and capable of being uh, productive members of society. And I definitely want to say thanks to uh, Carl Munger with uh, Gallant Few tonight. And uh, Alex, what do you got for us, dear? Um, you know what? I also, what I did want to say something was that uh, you know, being part of an organization, I've noticed that a lot of these organizations, I think they mean well, but they just don't do it right, correctly. And uh, I'm glad that there's gallant few out there. But usually they get these veterans and they're like, oh, you poor broken veteran, you know, and it, it almost like perpetuates that because it makes them feel like they're they're broken or they should, you know, feel sorry for, you know, just breathing sometimes. And Instead of celebrating them and telling them all their strengths, it's almost like they want to emphasize their weaknesses so that way they can get more money. It's ridiculous, but kind of what I wanted to close with. But I'm glad, you know, that Carl is doing what he's doing with his team. You no, know, it's real easy to put a picture of a severely maimed veteran up on the Internet and get people to give you money, and we're just not going to do that. Because I, I think that's it's not appropriate. It demeans the veteran. It sends the wrong message. It makes it much harder Agreed. to raise money. But, but we're just not going to do that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Carl, I definitely want to applaud you for what you do, brother. Um, and I, and I want to say thank you for um, being a nonprofit for veterans who is not eccentric to just Ranger Battalion or just Ranger Regiment uh, veterans. Uh, that you embrace all veterans, and I, I want to say thank you for that. We're not just 9/11 either. That's that's another easy one. You know, when you say Absolutely. we're only going to help 9/11 veterans, that that leaves out a big population that needs help. Absolutely, Absolutely. there are um, an, a large number of Korean War veterans that are still alive, and Vietnam veterans uh, suffer from post-traumatic stress. And, and suffer with uh, the demons that they carry from those those wars. I have a cousin um, so that fought. I have a cousin that was a tanker in the Korean War, and uh, eighty is eighty something years old. And 
about six months ago, he took his own life. Wow. And that's that's absolutely heartbreaking. Um, you know, I, yeah. I I see far too many Korean War veterans and Vietnam veterans uh, who didn't get um, the support and the the backing that they deserved uh, when they came home from war. And you know, I think that uh, maybe you know, in this day and age, a lot of 9-11 veterans uh, receive maybe it, it's a little bit more than, um, it, it goes a little far past the left and right limits um, because there are those individuals who receive support who absolutely don't deserve it um, but it has made it easier for our Korean War veterans and our Vietnam War veterans to receive the support that they should have received when they came back from war and they didn't um, so that's, mm-hmm. it's definitely made it easier for those that mm-hmm. small group of individuals or that large group of individuals to the support that they deserved um, in coming back from supporting their country. So, you know, we're we're all about taking care of all veterans, regardless of uh, was uh, a Korean War veteran or Vietnam veteran or a post 9/11 veteran. Uh, Dr. Jeff Falkel, my gold star father. Uh, my dad, uh, what do you have for us, sir? <clears throat> Again, I just want to thank Carl for for what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. I, you know, I learned more about it from Kansas over, and Alex over this past six months, and and uh, you know, whatever we can do to help you out, brother, you just pop smoke and let us know. Thank you. Because it's it's what it's what needs to be done. And definitely uh, want to say, uh, you know, we you've been listening to an episode of the Hot Wash here um, for our brothers and sisters uh, to take care of them and make sure that they are not forgotten and that they have the support that they need. You're never alone. Um, all you have to do is reach out to uh, several organizations who are there for you um, 24 hours a day. I want to say uh, send a shout out to uh, Missing Warrior Alliance. Uh, who sends out uh, social media posts on veterans who are um, endangered or veterans who are missing. Um, Our goal is to go out and find the veterans. You know, statistics tell us that uh, when a veteran goes dark and uh, they might have posted something, um, maybe suicidal ideolations on social media, we have a window of 24 to 48 hours to find those individuals before they make that fatal flaw of their life. Uh, Missing Warrior Alliance, Missing Warrior Radio uh, is dedicated to finding those individuals. The Veteran Search and Recovery Organization uh, sends teams out liaisons to find those individuals and catch them before they make their fatal flaw. You've also got uh, <clears throat> Drinking Brothers, Valiant Guard, Killing Guard, excuse me, uh, who is dedicated to being there. There's plenty of organizations. Please, veterans, listen and take heed. You're never alone. You can reach out to any of these organizations, any of these individuals. You can reach out to me personally. You can reach out to Jeff Falkel, Alex Maltizo, Carl Monger. Um, there's plenty of people that will answer your freaking Facebook message um, or your post, your cry for help, you're never alone. We have your back. And no matter what, um, we're going to look out for you and 
make sure that you have the help you need. Definitely want to say thank, thank you for calling in tonight, Carl. Thanks for being a, an episode or being a guest on the episode of the Hot Wash. Look forward to having you in in the future. Um, want to say God bless America. God bless the USA. Nice stalkers don't quit. Good night, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thank you, Carl.